0: Welcome to Level 7, a podcast about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's a magical place.
1: Episode 268, Defenders, Season 1, Episode 2, Mean Right Hook. To welcome to Level 7. This is Agent Samantha, and somewhere off to, I think my right is...
2: Agent Stu. It's probably upright. Upright. Which would be like a mean right hook, not a mean left hook.
1: Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> it's just, the north is to my right, or actually the northwest is to my right, so I think you're off in that direction somewhere.
2: Yeah, let's just go with that. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> So yes, we we took the reins over one more time. Um and uh and, and hopefully Ben's having a relaxing uh day off. I don't know what he know I don't know that he knows what that is, but hopefully he's doing it. And we're going to sit and talk about Defenders uh episode 2.
1: Yeah. And I think I hear Ben laughing somewhere.
2: I think I do too. He's, he's or or he's he's either laughing like Yay, I get the day off, or he's just shaking his head. Oh, no.
1: No, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, either one. But hey, you know, we can listen to Ben. Because we have our initial reactions. We called in when we first watched the show about a year ago. And those reactions... Uh, they include one Mr. Daniel Butcher, who is one of the original founders of Welcome to Level Seven. If you're not familiar with the earlier episodes. And if you're not, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it because Ben and Daniel argued a lot, and it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: they they also they also talked a lot about um, the Marvel universe and and how it what it was and where it came from and and all that sort of stuff,
1: yes. and it was some really great conversations because mm-hmm. they're far more familiar with these characters as uh, comic book figures than we are mm-hmm. not to say that. I don't think you and I have a lot of fun doing this too. Yes, we have a lot of fun. I oh, just yeah. don't know what we're talking
2: about sometimes. <laughs> At least I don't, I'm not going to speak for you.
1: Well, I think we can get into that during the discussion, but mm-hmm. let's first listen to what we had to say about a year ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Agent Daniel here, defenders episode two. With a feeling of setup? Seems like a lot of setup right at the moment. It does. We, we're munch, marching forward, we're finding out things, but a lot of setup and not a lot of screen time for a lot of our characters because they, again, they're just separated in there. They're broken up. Um of course everybody can guess that I was excited about the first meeting with Danny and Luke. Uh, it's nice, I guess. Um, but as Stan Lee saith, when two heroes meet for the first time, they must fight us, even if Stannis does not wheel it, will it. And and that's what happened. We had our fight. So, um, yeah, there you go. Peace out later, bye. Off to episode three. Bye.
3: Bye. Hey, it's Samantha. I just finished episode two. That's another exciting episode. I hope this pattern keeps going. Um, yeah, no more disappointing iron fist. Yay! This is actually, like, really good, interesting iron fist. And uh, speaking of which, I really loved when he and Luke first met and they started fighting and and Danny was basically bouncing off of Luke. That was hilarious. Well, that was until that last punch, but of course. Um, <laughs> um, did you, so we have an architect on the run some C4, of course, the earthquake, a door, I'm guessing about 300 feet below ground level because that one lady on, the, on, on Trisha's show said that it must have come about 300 feet down, a door that won't open, C4, an architect, I think and that's all connected um the hand is using all their resources to try to get this door open. Um also have you noticed that there the use of color tinting in the show. It's either lighting or um just they went through with a computer in post production and did the tinting. Um so like when Misty first met Jessica, she was walking down a hallway, it was yellow. Luke's color and then it said she walked through a door and she was suddenly in a blue room Jessica's color so we do have that definite transition from one world that we know of to another one series that we have from another um and when Jessica met um Matt she was in a blue interrogation room but the door was red so yeah keep your eye on that because that's fun stuff okay you gotta go watch episode three bye
0: Okay, so episode two wasn't as good as episode one. That's just a true fact. Mean right hook. Yeah. Understatement. Hey, it's me, past Ben, calling in. This is my initial reaction to Mean Right Hook. I have no idea how I'm going to feel about this in the future, but for right now, I've seen two episodes of Defenders, and I'm liking it a lot. This episode, people fight each other that's what they do. <laughs> and it worked out nicely that they're fighting each other. You know, you got those superheroes meeting up and having a, some sort of misunderstanding to so they fight each other. That's good. You know, and then, um, some great moments in that, K giant fist fight. Then there's the, uh, Jessica Jones, electro fight, which was long, but was interesting. And, and then you have stick and, uh, leader and their conflict and yeah, I mean this is what I've been waiting for stuff like this is what I've been waiting for in Netflix series now, do we want to see them as a team, teaming up, fighting bad guys and stuff like that, yeah we do of course we do, but hey this is a bad bull that so that's my initial reaction I like it, I like it a lot that's it later man.
1: People. Uh I can't remember if Ben said this last time, but were we ever that young? Were we ever that naive? Probably. I'm yeah. probably
2: still that young and still that naive. Maybe. Maybe not that young, but definitely Maybe. that naive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Alright, well, let's... uh jump right into this episode discussion this episode picks up moments after the end of episode one matt murdoch is on the roof of his apartment listening to the aftermath of the earthquake that shook new york city people are trapped in rooms where the doors are jammed police are requesting backup over the radio fire trucks are racing to help matt struggles with the choice to take action or let the authorities handle this mass emergency He's about to turn away when he hears a couple of kids talking about robbing someplace, and the store owner cocks a gun. Mattis instinctively runs towards the danger. He jumps into the fray after the first shot is fired, knocking out the light in the alley. While he lets the robbers get away with their lives, he knocks down the armed store owner to prevent him from killing one of the thieves. The store owner strikes back at him. After Matt disarms the man, he punches him three or four times more than maybe is necessary completely knocking him out. Dazed with the results of his choice, Matt walks away into the darkness. He hurries back to his apartment and catches his breath. He tries to tend his wounded knuckles. However, his adrenaline is still running, and he knocks the first aid kit off the counter in frustration. He opens the locker that contains his daredevil gear and considers putting it on, but is interrupted by a call from Foggy. Later at Josie's bar, the two friends meet for a beer. Foggy exchanges friendly banter with Josie, who, by the smile during her sarcastic comment, clearly misses his patronage. Foggy and Matt highlight how work has changed for the both of them since their their firm fell apart. Foggy shifts the conversation to Matt's relationship with Karen, the trust between the three of them, and then onto the real reason Foggy is there. He's checking in with Matt to make sure he hasn't returned to his vigilante ways. Before Matt can give a response, his reddened, scabbed knuckles betray him. Foggy's hand Matt some case files, saying that he's outsourcing legal work from Hogarth, Benowitz, and Chow. That is the kind of work that Matt specializes in. Good people who need justice. That's enough work to keep Matt busy and away from fighting crime in the streets. So, do you have any comments oh. on Matt's side of the story?
2: That's all that Matt does in this episode?
1: He has a little bit more later. Okay. Yeah. yeah
2: no, I um I appreciated the fact that Foggy uh, reached out, because a lot of times when you're stuck in something, you can't see the light of day. It, you need people to reach to you, not always be expected to reach to them. You see what I'm saying, Vern?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And it was good for Foggy to do that.
1: Yeah, it was. On the other hand, I can see why Matt wanted to jump in. Because the, the people in charge, the police and the fire department, ambulance services, they're all overwhelmed with this earthquake. Absolutely.
2: I'm glad that Matt has that sense about him to jump in and put himself in the middle of danger, but oftentimes, to- but Foggy knows that it's a th- it's a source of distress for Matt, and instead of just going, you know, I sure hope that kid figures it out, he has an idea and he has a solution that hopefully will bring them together.
1: Yeah, I love that about Matt, but I also love that Foggy plays his conscious here. Mm-hmm.
2: hmm So what's next?
1: Next up, we have Jessica's point of view in this episode. So we're not going to start with Jessica. We're going to start with Trish. The morning after the earthquake, Trish Walker calls to leave a message for Jessica for what may be the 19th time. Trish tries to walk through a police barricade to find that the barricade is there to block off a giant hole in the street that th- was created by the earthquake. Later on her radio show, Trish leads a discussion of the earthquake with the official report from the mayor's office. The quake had a 4.6 magnitude. It was a shallow one centered in Hell's Kitchen. While talking to a local geologist who questions if it was an earthquake because shallow earthquakes can be up to 50 miles deep. But whatever happened last night was only 300 feet deep. After the call is cut off, Trish's producer said that the people upstairs ordered no more earthquake talk. It's not a conversation. Elsewhere, the police are beginning their investigation into the explosives found in John Raymond's motel room. Misty Knight arrives. Her boss, Captain Strieber, tells her that Homeland Security and the FBI are already there making their own investigations. Misty is introduced to an especially irritable Jessica Jones because she has been there for hours being questioned. After the interrogating officer gives her leave, Jessica leaves in a huff. As she walks out of the motel room, Misty realizes that Jessica had taken some police files with her. Misty goes to catch up with her, but loses her at the stairwell. Later, Jessica scours through New York's public records, looking for information about the Twin Oaks shipping company. The only thing she finds is paperwork regarding the transfer of assets from one company, Sherwin Holdings. She looks into that company to find only more transfer of assets from another company. They are all shell companies, and the transfers are going back as far as the year 1820. Jessica asks the clerk if she can find more records going back further. And the clerk says that those records are in the historical branch on the other side of town, and she'll need an appointment. Before Jessica can leave, Jerry Hogarth appears. Hogarth wants to warn Jessica to stay away from this case. Since the FBI and Homeland Security is interested, it's too risky for Jessica to handle. John Raymond is now on a federal watch list. This case is now a matter of national security. If anyone who is found aiding Raymond will be shot on site. Jessica questions who Hogarth is really trying to protect, herself or her work associate. Hogarth deflects by saying that Jessica has earned some time off. Before walking away in a huff, Jessica tells her to stop worrying about her. Later, as Hogarth is leaving her office, she pulls Foggy away from a conversation with Marcy. She asks him to take care of a case off-record. If Jessica Jones gets into trouble, he is to find a way to keep that trouble away from the firm. Foggy doesn't hesitate to agree to it and asks if this is a contingency plan. Hogarth retorts that with Jessica, it's only a matter of time. And she's right, because in the very next scene, Jessica calls Trish as she's walking back into her apartment. She hangs up on her when she senses someone in her apartment. She finds that it's Malcolm. But John Raymond is holding a gun to his head because she kept following his trail. Jessica tries to reason with him that his wife was worried, and now she wishes that she listened to his warning. As she and Malcolm try to talk him down, John says that he knows too much, and next they will come after his family. He can't tell her who they are. As she continues to argue, John sees a shadow under the front door. The Black Sky slices the lock with her katana and kicks open the door. John shoots at her, but she's fast to block the bullets with her sword. The Black Sky knocks Jessica and Malcolm out of the way to get to John. He forbids her from taking what he has from him by taking his own life by a bullet to the head. Jessica tries to stop Black Sky and discovers that there is someone who is stronger and faster than her because she's knocked to the floor like a rag doll. The Black Sky leaves. Jessica tries to follow but cannot keep up and loses her in the stairwell. Outside of her building, the Black Sky has disappeared and Misty reappears and tells Jess, who is covered in John's blood, to put her hands up. In an interrogation room at the police station, Jessica still has blood on her face and is handcuffed to the table. Misty enters with two fat files on Jess, points out that Jessica has been in a pain all day and now has caused Misty's one lead to be killed. Jess tries to argue that she was following John Raymond because his family was worried. Misty lists off all of Jessica's possible charges, but they're all misdemeanors. Jessica is not suspected of John's murder, but is believed to know who did. Jess is quick to say that he shot himself, but Misty questions her response because Jessica was chasing someone. Jess takes a moment to comprehend what she saw and tries to begin to explain that this case isn't normal. Suddenly, Matthew Murdoch enters the room, advises Jessica to stop talking, declares the interrogation to be over, and announces that he's Jessica's attorney.
2: And all the Tiggers bounced.
1: Yep, 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 yep.
2: Because, because... This is I mean, like Avengers, right? The first Avengers movie. This is like the the team up this is the uh, well, this is exactly the team up and and this is something we've been wanting on t v for a long time now you've c fans, you get this, you get this like once a year, and it's great for you, but we haven't gotten it on t v yet, but now we have, so
1: yay, yeah, I think we did get a little bit of it in the beginning of Agents of Shield, but not yeah, I mean there. Were- There was some crossover, but not quite to this degree. Not quite to this degree. Yeah. So, yes, the incident from the first Avengers movie is mentioned. There wasn't so much with Matt because with his solitary storyline in this episode, he didn't directly cross over with any other characters from any of the other shows. But with Jessica's story, we see Misty walk from yellow lighting into blue lighting. So she's walking from Luke's world into Jessica's world.
2: Um ooh I never caught that. Good she... good catch. Good catch.
1: Oh this this set my film school instincts a tingling. <laughs> and then at the end of the episode when Matt enters the interrogation room, the room is blue but the door is red and of course Matt's glasses are red. Well yeah. Yeah, so there's this really nice on screen mixture of what's going on here and how they're in- infiltrating each other's lives also when the black sky and I'm not calling her Electra yet but black sky when she does her little action sequence with the katana she's faster than she was before she's stronger than she was before i mean she's like she's moving at some like uh, like almost speedster speed
2: She's moving very fast. Yeah.
1: There's also like a bookend sort of imagery here. At the beginning of of Jessica's story, Misty loses Jessica at the stairwell. And at the end of Jessica's story, Jessica loses the black sky there in her apartment Mm -hmm. complex. And there's a third staircase, but that happens with Hogarth at the um, Hall of Records. Right. Yeah. Uh, Do you have anything to add?
2: no, i I just like the fact that Matt, that all these characters are crossing over into each other's stories, and especially considering that they're doing it with purpose and um, forethought, I approve.
1: yes. And even though this is episode two of eight, I don't mind that they took a little bit of time to start really weaving the characters together,
2: right. I like the fact that they. Did take their time. I mean, I think initially I was, I want it now. I want it now. I want it now. But on the rewatch, I think it's, it's more important for it to take time because you have to get from the first episode is all set up of where the characters were, what they are doing now. And then the second episode is we got four people to get together into one team, but let's pair them off pretty quickly. So I'll let you get into the next part of that. But yeah, I like that they sort of started to pair these people off.
1: Yeah, and it it feels very organic in what's happening.
2: Very, very organic. And that's a great term for this. Yeah, and
1: I read an interview. I can't remember if it was from one of the showrunners or from Kevin Feige. I think I read it about a week ago, but. Their feeling about what was happening here and getting the Defenders together was not to have, like, say, Claire call all of them and get them all together. Mm -hmm. They wanted to do things very differently from the Avengers and how they formulated this group. And so here, instead, it's more like four people who happened to be on the same bus at the same time that it had a big accident and they survived. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so it's just similar in some ways, but very different approach
2: well it's similar in that it needs a team up yeah right but it's different in that it's a little bit more organic and there's not somebody pulling all the strings i.e uh Nick Fury right anyway so who's your next uh through line story person
1: uh Luke Cage and it's very short In Harlem, Luke helps clear large debris pieces while Claire attends the wounded. They talk about his post-prison mindset. While most take a moment to relax, Luke has returned to stopping criminals. To be fair, Misty did ask for help. Claire tells him that due to her nursing work at the shelter, she knows that the new criminal rat hole is a place called Trouble and a Pair of Dice. Later that night, Luke enters that sleazy bar. After assessing the room, he determines the best person to rough up for information would be everybody's favorite street-level arms dealer, Turk. Luke takes him out to an alley and demands if Mariah and Shades are behind the criminal and deadly recruitment of kids in Harlem. But those two have gone silent since Luke went back to prison. Turk refuses to know more, but suddenly remembers something interesting after Luke smashes in a beer keg. The recruitment operation is run by a man who goes by the moniker White Hat and names the street intersection where he can be found. Luke goes to that intersection and sees White Hat getting out of a van. He calls Misty and advises her to get a warrant ready for that location, but changes his mind when he sees White Hat talking to Cole. So, yeah, um, you'll see why this section for Luke is very short, but... That bar name, I love the bar name.
2: Uh, yeah, paradise.
1: Trouble and a pair of dice, like trouble in paradise. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. I yes, I I think the writing in this is pretty is pretty spot on. Kind of wish we knew who that guy was. So I kind of wish it was a a guy from, um, Luke Cage's you know season one of Luke Cage. Mm-hmm. But it's okay that it's not. I guess.
1: I don't know. Well, we do kind of get a hint about who this man is.
2: Yeah, in this series. What I'm saying, though, is I wish it were foreshadowed in his series.
1: Maybe, but we do get a hint who this man is associated with. Because in these, at least in these very first, early first few episodes, color means so much about what's going on. In this case, the color white is associated with the hand. Oh yeah, and this okay. guy's named White Hat for his unique fashion sense, which is actually a ironic name for a bad guy. Mm
2: hmm. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna say that. Yeah. Because it's it's a uh, you know the typical the stereotype is white hat, black hat, right? And that's a that's on purpose. So.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that term goes all the way back to cowboy movies, like the black and white ones, because that
2: I. Absolutely agree. I mean, these it goes back to the first silent movies. You had to identify easily who was good and who was bad.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lone Ranger.
2: I always think of Black Bart from uh, Toy Story, not Toy Story, Christmas Story.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Black Bart. Okay.
2: <laughs> All Blue will get you. All right. Enough, <laughs> en- enough, enough nonsense for me. Go.
1: Okay. On to Danny Rand. At Colleen's dojo-slash-apartment combo, she assesses that the building has not been damaged by the earthquake. She calls out to Danny, but he doesn't respond as he is meditating with his earbuds in. He's refocusing in case he comes across the warrior that he engaged back in Cambodia a second time. Colleen believes that the man who died in the sewer wasn't only a victim because he called Danny Iron Fist. She believes that this means that there are others who are fighting the hand. Danny doesn't wish to seek out allies because he feels wholly responsible for the death and destruction of Kan Lun, all because he left his post. Colleen points out that he's not alone in this. Perhaps the man in the sewer sent them to New York because there are people who wish to fight the hand there. He asks if she has a plan to find others, and she believes the katana that the man used, a scamato, is a lead because there's only ten of them in the world. Therefore, it is traceable. One of the world's best sword workshops is in New York City, so the man who owned the scamato may have done business with them. Danny has his doubts about this plan, but trusts Colleen. Later, after Danny and Colleen enter the workshop, she admires the collection on the walls and workbenches. She finds another scamato, notes that the swords are usually unsharpened unless they're meant to be used, and then sees a streak of blood in an open doorway. They go into the next room to find that it's full of dead bodies, still warm. Kali notices someone was dragged out of there. Danny finds a painting of Kun Lun on the wall. They question what is going on when they hear a noise. They hide. A group of people enter the back room wearing hazmat gear and spraying the corpses with a chemical. Danny and Colleen position themselves and attack the masked men, who go down with little fight. One of them escapes, and Danny follows him out into the alley. Danny tries to find out if the man is with the hand, but the guy cries that he's just the cleanup and doesn't know who they are. Danny pulls the mask off the guy to reveal that it's Cole, the same Cole that Luke Cage has been tracking. Speaking of whom... As Danny pulls his arm back to punch Cole, Luke grabs his arm and throws Danny to the ground. Danny gets back up and taunts Luke, and Luke doesn't hesitate to step up. They fight, and Danny learns what so many others have learned over the past few years. Punching Luke Cage is like punching a brick wall. At least, that applies to the average punch. Danny summons his chi into his hand and is then able to knock Luke against a wall, which shocks Luke. A police car arrives. Denny and Luke make a quick escape, but Cole gets pinched, leaving Luke feeling guilty.
2: So, two things about this. Uh, The first was, or three things. Mm -hmm. One, did they go to Melvin's shop?
1: No, this is a completely different shop.
2: Okay, so there's two master weapons builders in Hell's Kitchen. Got it. Okay.
1: Right. Um, just to clarify, Melvin does specialized gear uh-huh. for individual people. He okay. he just does like outfits. This was a sword workshop.
2: Okay. Yes. So so the, so it, it is reasonable that they could have two, and you wouldn't necessarily want Melvin to be there.
1: Correct. And this shop does not only do katanas. There were some Western style swords uh, in the background of the shop.
2: Okay. So the next thing I had was, is this where Danny says, oh, we should just join a team or something?
1: I th- yeah, yeah. I think the conversation that uh, he and Colleen had at the dojo apartment. Really? Uh, yeah, that's when he he made that statement. Mm-hmm. Oh, Danny, always so obvious.
2: <laughs> always Captain Obvious. Yeah. And then when the he's he finally summons the Chi and he gets the iron fist and he punches Luke punches Luke cage. That's a direct callback to Luke cage season one and possibly like the third episode or the first, I mean, very early in the season when um, Luke is saving the Chinese place that he eats at and they're in there shaking the owners down and he steps up and makes his point And then he punches the guy in his face and then Luke gets punched like that with the iron fist. I thought that was a pretty cool callback. Yeah, it is. And anytime Turks on scene is a plus, I'm just going to, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like I said, everybody's favorite street level arms dealer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, everybody's favorite person to beat up Turk. <laughs> so the Scamato? hmm. Uh-huh. According to the trivia for this episode on imdb.com, it's not a real katana. It's not a real style of katana, even though that there are a few katanas that are like this. They're very rare and very valuable and very, very strong. It's actually named after Shinya Sugamato, who directed a Japanese film in 1989 called Tetsu the Iron Man. And I have never seen that movie. I apologize. I may put that on my Netflix DVD list. That could be interesting.
2: So, so it's not a real sword. Is that what no, saying? it's
1: not. Yeah, it's not a real type of sword. It's mm-hmm. made up for the series.
2: Are there? I'm mean, going to wonder if they. Let I me mean, put it this way. I know nothing, so the person I would ask is you. So, because you know, well, you know more than I know, which is nothing. Do you know? And
1: I know a tiny, tiny bit.
2: <laughs> do you know if there are? uh it, it if they took this idea of a katana that is so sharp and you know special in in every way um if they took that from a real life thing, or do they just make it this up so that it it is a good way to get the people in the room?
1: Yes, uh there are similar katanas, like the really, really good katanas out there. it takes about a year to make them. So if you want to buy a brand new one, you're on a waiting list for quite a while. Right. They're very expensive, of course. And do you remember in The Bodyguard with Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston, there's a scene in there where he hands her a katana, and then he takes her silk scarf and just kind of just tosses it up in the air, and the scarf falls over the katana, and it slices it in two?
2: I do remember that.
1: Real katanas can do that. With very... Yeah, so, yeah, they exist. So this
2: this idea that this special sword is not that far off from reality right that's cool
1: yeah and the even the ancient ones the quality of steel is really great quality even by today's standards because the japanese at the time understood that adding carbon to to the iron as you're heating it in the fire it creates a nice strong steel that is also it's flexible without breaking and that actually increases the lifespan of a sword. Well, there you go.
2: Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Learned something new today. Yeah.
1: All right. Who's next? The hand at the New York Philharmonic, our mystery woman in white, the one you and Ben have nicknamed Ripley for some odd reason.
2: Are you serious? The soul- Please tell me you know why.
1: Yes, I know why. Okay, 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 okay? <laughs> okay.
2: okay good. I just want to make sure that you know why she was named Ripley. Okay, go. Sorry.
1: It's called sarcasm.
2: I I know. I left my (laughs) my book, my translation book over at at the house. So you just, sorry. Okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, this woman in white is the sole audience. Actually, I think in this episode she's wearing like a gold color. Anyways, she is the sole audience of a performance of a string quartet. After the song concludes, an administrator suggests thanking her for the donation for building repairs by hosting her at their next gala. But the mystery woman declines, saying that she prefers a more intimate setting. The administrator then turns their conversation to the song that they were just listening to, Brahms String Quartet Number 1 in C minor. The administrator remarks on Beethoven's influence on the piece, and they have a conversation about the music and the key it was written in. And it's clear from the subtext of Alexandra's remarks that she personally knew Brahms. This conversation ends when the mystery woman notices Madame Chow, who came to tell her that they've encountered a wall covered in inscriptions about Kunlun. They've tried tearing it down, but nothing has worked. The mystery woman concludes that the wall is actually a locked door created by the elders of Kun Lun, and they must locate the key. Later, in what appears to be an abandoned building, the mystery woman in white is speaking to a figure whose head is covered with a bag and hands are cuffed. She says to the figure that everyone he knows is supposedly dead. They both know who the other person is and wants to skip the old wartime banter. She uncovers the mystery man to reveal Stick, Matt's old mentor. He names the woman, Alexandra. They have so much to talk about. And so do we. (laughs) So we now have a name. Her name's not Ripley. (laughs) Uh, As far as we know, she's never fought aliens. Her name is Alexandra. And it's, like I said, it's clear from the subcontext or the subtext of the conversations that she's had so far. She's very old and she knows about Kun Lun.
2: And she still looks great for her age.
1: Oh, she looks excellent.
2: If only we could all look as good. Amen. So, I mean, I knew Stick was coming into the, into the, into the episode because I read the credits. And I don't fast forward through them. So it said, oh, special guest star Scott Glenn. I was like, oh, Stick's going to be here sooner or later. I didn't realize that he was going to be like, the mystic on the good side. Right. Whereas. And that, and that's the setup. You know, if she's the, if she's the mystic on the bad side, they, they encounter the mystic on the good side. Yeah. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty normal. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see what that does in the rest of the series.
1: Yeah. Oh, stick. Of course he's a cranky mystic.
2: They they don't always have to be you know happy.
1: Yeah, they're not always you know Gandalf.
2: Was Gandalf really happy? Gandalf was pretty cranky too.
1: Yeah, he could be. Usually it was all Pippin's fault, but yeah, I mean,
2: don't yeah. be Pippin around G- Gandalf is pretty much I think a life lesson. But yeah,
1: <laughs> well, don't be don't be in a perilous situation with Pippin and Gandalf. Let's put it that way. Because I, I think he could handle Pippin better back when they were at the Shire. <laughs> I mean, let's be,
2: let's be in a perilous situation with Gandalf, sure. But not Pippin. But then really, all Gandalf is going to do is fall down and be like, hey, run away.
1: Yeah. Fly, you fools. Okay. Um, and in case anyone was wondering, the string quartet is called the Aeolus Quartet which there were multiple sources for where they could have gotten that, so I'm not quite sure. Um, but it goes back to Greek mythology. I think it was one story involving somebody being a god of wind. But okay. that would make more sense for a wind quartet, not a string quartet. But
2: I, I have zero idea what you're talking about. I do... <laughs> yeah, anyways. <laughs> when So you know how you, you have definitions of like what makes you... F- Rich, you know, what makes you powerful, stuff like that. So for me, Rich is owning a, a McDuck mansion, right? So the money vault that I can swim through my cash with. Um, <laughs> influence is this scene, right? So for me, if I'm able to summon a string quartet to play me a, a song on a whim, that would be influence and power. Right. So thankfully, Ripley has that. I mean, Alexandra has that. Uh,
1: yeah, I think she does.
2: <laughs> and, and it's also cool to see Gal still cowering, right? And she's not necessarily a, like a beaten dog, but she still knows her place and she still knows who she is compared to the other person in the room. And that's a very interesting thing because even, in, even when we've seen Madame Gao, she's always shut the thing down. Right. We saw her in I think it was Daredevil season two. She just shut that fight down real quick, especially in uh, Iron Fist, too, when they left her in the cell.
1: Yeah. Oh, I, I think actually my favorite scene with Madam Gao, and this goes still ties into what we were talking about. There's a scene in Daredevil season two where Daredevil's on looking for a lead. He's going after them. He he goes into a room and there's Madam Gal. And she says, I'm not going to fight you because right now our interests are aligned. Mm-hmm. And there she is, all that power. She She's wise and she knows exactly what to say and do at that moment. And she knows the best thing to do is let di- her enemy take care of her other enemy.
2: And then to have that person cower in front of Alexandria. So, you know, this is, again, it's all connected. And that's an interesting... Interesting thing. I'm excited to see again how that plays.
1: Yeah. But we're gonna have to wait until the next episode. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. Because the next episode is so much fun. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And again, so we've got we got Matt and Danny
2: sort of connected not Matt and Danny. Luke and Danny connected in in the punch and, and who is that guy and all that sort of stuff. And then we have Matt and K- Karen, Kristen, not Kristen. Jessica, Jessica, that's her name. Um we have Matt and Jessica connected because, you know, Misty put him in put her in jail, right? So I like that they put two I like that they brought them together and then brought them then, and then presumably will bring them together again. All four of them together.
1: Right. So I think we're going to uh, wrap up this discussion. Uh, do you have any last words? Only
2: that. Thank you guys for listening. And I really do appreciate the conversation and I appreciate our patrons, our Patreon patrons. Is it Patreon patrons? Anyway, the, The people who subscribe to us on Patreon, you guys rock. Andrew, Jeffrey, Trent, Tassel, and our new is Patreon, Agent084. We've gotten lots of great emails from them, so um, keep them coming, guys.
1: So I was talking with Ben earlier tonight. He decided to take this week off, but he did check in this afternoon, and he told us what a great job we were doing how well we were contributing to the show and the conversations, and I got the feeling Mr. Uptown misses our humble establishment.
0: Thanks once more for listening. You've heard us, now we'd love to hear from you. Just go to welcometolevel7.com slash feedback to contact us through our website. You can also leave us a voicemail by calling one 55 level 7 You can also join the conversation by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash welcome to level seven, or by following us on Twitter, where we are level seven pod. Welcome to level seven is a proud member of the noodle mix network. Find more of our award winning and award nominated podcasts to help you think, laugh and succeed at noodle.mx. Learn how to podcast, get productive in your personal and professional life, theorize over TV shows, laugh at our clean comedy, learn critical thinking from movie reviews and more at noodle.mx. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Godspeed.
1: For the after credit, we thought we'd talk about something that was released recently. It's not MCU, but it is relative to our interests. It's Christopher Robin, the movie. So if you still want to see that movie before Warren, we will be talking spoilers after this point.
2: So you saw the movie?
1: I saw the movie.
2: Were you tigger about it?
1: Oh, I was very tigger about it. Loved every minute of it.
2: Well, so I actually saw it. I think I saw most of it twice.
1: Um, <laughs> so what? You took the kids, didn't you?
2: Well, we. it's Christopher Robin. Yeah. <laughs> It's Winnie the Pooh. You got to take the kids. I don't blame you. (laughs) So what happened was, um, so the first, so I took, we took the family. It was a family affair. And my, my two and a half year old son um, is really into singing right now. He's just singing, 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 singing. doesn't matter where he is or how he got there or if he's in the car or what, but he's going to sing by golly. (laughs) <laughs> and th- then the movie was no different. So I took him out of the movie theater and I sat with him in the, uh, in the, um, in the lobby because I'm not going to sit in a movie theater with a kid singing. Sorry. <laughs> I don't care whose kid it is. um, Especially if it's mine. Now, if it's my kid, I'm taking him out because, you know, I don't want to ruin it for for anybody else. So then the theater uh, saw that I was doing that and offered, said, by the way, stay for the next show. Um, it's no big deal. Just, you know, exchange your ticket, blah, blah, blah. So then I watched most of it again, but this time it's like, at that point it's like 9.30. <laughs> and so I, uh, I I fell asleep. Oh. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so so, I, I think there's some parts in it that I missed, but ultimately, I really liked it, and I liked um, Obi Wan Kenobi playing off of uh,
1: Peggy Carter,
2: Agent Carter, <laughs> and and I'm sorry, I will love Haley Atwell. She is amazing and beautiful, and she should be in more things.
1: Oh yes. Um, she recently in stars, they had a miniseries about Howard's end and she was the lead actress and I haven't seen it yet and I'd love to, but I mean, it, it's at the point now where anything she's in, I'm like, I want to go see it. Mm-hmm. I want to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, cause she's amazing and she plays a woman who she loves her husband, but he hasn't been around much lately. Mm-hmm. Oh, Christopher Robin, what happened to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of my favorite bits was uh, when Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh go back to the Hundred Acre Wood. And along the way, of course, they pick up a red balloon because Pooh sees a red balloon he must have.
2: <laughs> this was uh, my favorite part of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really want the red balloon. Why do you want the red balloon? Because I want it. <laughs> <laughs> this that was that perfect.
1: Yes. Um, so they go back to the hundred acre wood and it's foggy and sad. And that is the saddest I've ever seen Winnie the Pooh holding a red balloon. Mm -hmm. And it was just sad. And I was like, Oh gosh, this movie is not going to be just depressing the entire time. And it wasn't, um,
2: nope. I, I especially liked that. He calls Mycroft a, uh, Half a lump or a woozle. He calls him a woozle, not a woozle. <laughs> um there was there were so many people in this. So many people in this that that it was good to you know my my brain was, you know, making connections like you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi and and and, and Peggy Carter. But then also, you know, they had um uh Mycroft, I forget the guy's name who who plays him, but he was a writer on doctor who for a whole bunch. And then um, one of the voice, the voices, I think it was rabbit was Peter Capaldi who played the 12th doctor. So, I mean, there's all these, there's all these names that you start connecting and, and, and you start picking them out and all that sort of stuff. So I really, I I will watch it again when I get it, you know, home video.
1: Yeah. And there were, Uh, Some of Christopher's co-workers in his office. Mm -hmm. If you looked at them carefully, they echoed Mm -hmm. the toys that he had back in the Hundred Acre Wood. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking about those toys, it's live action. So, of course, um, Christopher Robin's friends in the Hundred Acre Wood. They are CGI, and it looks very realistic. Right. But I didn't didn't realize this about... um, Uh, Because I've only read the books, and I've only seen the animated cartoons, but I didn't realize that Rabbit and Mr. Owl were supposed to be real woodland creatures, while the others are toys.
2: I didn't know that either.
1: Yeah. So,
2: so in that sort of essence, Christopher Robin brought in Pooh and Tigger and Piglet, right? And King... And Roo,
1: Yeah. Who, Tigger, Piglet, Kangaroo, Eeyore.
2: And Eeyore. Don't
1: how forget could, Eeyore.
2: How could we forget Ben?
1: Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh,
2: so he brought those guys in, and then Owl and, and, uh, P- Owl and Rabbit were already there, right? Right. Okay. So... So the guy who, who voiced Winnie the Pooh also voices Tigger. Yes. And I heard an interview with him talking about um, one of his first jobs. And one of his first jobs was a – you might remember this. Um, it was on the Disney Channel. It was Winnie the Pooh's it, – it was a bunch of people in big costumes playing Winnie the Pooh. And it was live action in a sense that it was live action – but there are people in costumes. Anyway, he dis- – and it was a circus, I think. Anyway, so he described this, and I was like, oh, I used to watch that. So, yes, I've been watching Winnie the Pooh for a long time, apparently.
1: I don't remember that, and that's because we only had the Disney Channel, like, for one week out of the year.
2: Oh, when it did the free preview.
1: right. Because at the time, you had to pay extra for the Disney Channel.
2: Yeah, you still do.
1: I don't. It's, it, it's now part of the basic package.
2: Right, but it's not nearly as good as it used to be. Nothing's yeah. nearly as good as it used to be. Yeah. It'll be interesting when the Disney streaming service comes in and what they choose to put on it.
1: Yeah. But I remember during that promotional week, mm-hmm. that was the first time I ever saw Star Wars. So we're tying it back into the Star Wars thing.
2: Really? They showed Star Wars even back then on the yeah. Disney channel?
1: Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Huh.
2: I mean I knew they had a tie, Star Tours and all that sort of stuff, but I didn't realize Star Wars was um I didn't realize it was that they tied it in that well. So Yeah. Well it's gonna be interesting to see what moves happens, what happens in moving forward yep. with the whole with the whole thing. Yep. So thumbs up or thumbs down for Christopher Robin.
1: Oh, two thumbs up,
2: two thumbs up for me too.
1: take the kids well, unless they're singing all the time, and take yeah. your grandma take your take
2: the kids and take your grandma. My grandma would love this one. we used to, we play poo sticks all the time at at her local park <laughs> and and I also heard an interview somewhere that said may have been the same one that said this was you're gonna look at the poo stick bridge and be like, oh, that's 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 the bridge it should be. That's the way it should be. That's the one I see in my imagination all the time so. Yes. Alrighty. All right. Have a good night.
1: Thank you. Good night. Bye.
2: Bye.